Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. In your pew Bible, you'll find that on page 714. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and to cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. Okay, good morning and welcome. My name is Joshua Razdal. I am not Kevin Hanley. The first time that someone introduced me to Kevin Hanley... It was about three years ago, I think, maybe two years ago. And I thought they said Kevin Manley. And so for about a year and a half, that's how I referred to him. And I think people thought I was joking. No one corrected me. And finally, someone told me he's not Manley at all. (laughs) So imagine my surprise. But I'm the pastor of Student and Family Ministries at your sister church just down Grand Avenue. I work at Montvale Evangelical Free Church. And uh, today I'm playing hooky. And it says something about how necessary you are at your own church when you say, I'm going to go preach somewhere else on a Sunday. And they're like, that's fine. We'll, we'll, see. we'll catch up with you later. So I'm kind of the Geno Smith of the, uh, of the pastoral staff over there. So I, I disappear, and it's not a problem. So we are reading from Isaiah 40 today. Thank you all very much for allowing me to be here. I, I greatly appreciate it. This is one of the most uh, important uh, scripture passages to me personally. And so we are going to go into uh, a little bit, some detail here today. Um, But first, before we even begin, a few years ago when I was in seminary, I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, outside Chicago, and I was going to a men's Bible study that met from 6 to 7.30 in the morning on Fridays. Yes, 6 to 7.30. The thing that brought me there was donuts. They always had donuts, and so that was the guarantee that I would be there, donuts and coffee. And it was in Lake Forest, Illinois, which is kind of to Chicago, what probably like Ridgewood is to here. Um, And so in my small group was a a dentist that drove a Maserati. And then there's me rolling up in my Pontiac four banger. Um, But that's okay. And and one of the people was, and I want to put this carefully, an executive, um, a senior executive from a very large uh, drugstore corporation in North America that shall remain nameless. And how very interesting, I I remember very distinctly, I actually wrote his quote down because I wanted to get it just right, that um, he was noticing a new behavior among his peers and his corporate partners. And and he said very specifically that the new people coming aboard, now he's senior leadership, 
and he'd been there for some years, and he said that they were clearing the table. That was the exact word that he used. In other words, that they had abdicated at some level responsibility for the financial welfare of the company in the long term because they saw that what was immediately available to them was something they could take full advantage of. And so they saw it really as an opportunity to to be milked. And so they weren't concerned about the future or the health of the well-being of the company, and they certainly were not worried about the generation to follow. Now, Isaiah in chapter 40, that is precisely where he finds himself. He prophesied through several kingships, most noticeably Hezekiah. And Hezekiah did many things right, but he also did some things that were wrong, and his imprudence would ultimately cost Israel terribly in her future. So if you have a chance and have, have a chance to look at the book of Isaiah, you'll see, in, 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 in should you become bored, and I assure you this never happens when I speak, but should you become bored and you want to look over chapter 39, it's very brief, and it gives a very different picture and sense of the book than, than chapter 40 will. We almost think of Isaiah as two books, and you have chapters 1 through 39, and, and here you have the prophet who's proclaiming that this huge nation to the northeast, Assyria, will come and it will judge Israel. And then he even hints that something further is to follow, that Babylon is, is beginning to, to beat around the bushes and, and, and beginning to, to make some noise. And then there's a stark change in chapter 40, and it hinges on Hezekiah did something very stupid. He, in this concern over Israel, an, em, an emissary comes from Babylon, and Hezekiah shows Babylon the, the sum total of the storehouses and the treasury of, of Israel. And so, Isaiah says in chapter 39, that was stupid. And, and honestly, Hezekiah's response to, to this is, it may have been, but, but one of the things Isaiah says is, but it's not going to hit you, it's only going to hit your sons and the generation to follow. And honestly, Hezekiah just says, Phew, as long as it's not me, good to go. Uh, as long as this evil doesn't befall me. And so Isaiah is forced to pen a letter, God's message to the next generation with a burden for that generation that the king did not have. And so you hopefully we'll see in the first eight verses of Isaiah 40 how his heart seems to warm to this task because it's a topic that has to be close to his heart. He lives in, in, in a narrow margin as a prophet, doesn't he? And and, and it kind of illuminates for us our position. And honestly, it's the position of anybody that stands up here and preaches or speaks. Now, I'm not here to tell stories on Kevin, although I could, because what's that? They say when the cat's away, the mice will play. We could. No, we won't do it. But but I'm going to tell you the truth. Guest preaching is a joy. And there's two reasons why. The first is that I I can pick a plum out of all the messages that I've written, and I could just come in here and, and give an absolute... Winner, And I just, that would be something very easy to do. And I have no investment or skin in the game. I could come up here and absolutely stink this joint up and, and, and be completely faithless to the text. And, and you could throw rotten fruit and, and kick me out the door. But that, that would be the end of it. The burden of responsibility on someone who preaches regularly and preaches from this pulpit is, is, is immense, isn't it? It carries an attachment of weight. And that weight can be crippling. Brian Chappell writes this. I think I might have put it on the um, I'm going to put it on this, writes that, that, that pastors and to a certain degree prophets live in an awkward tension between arrogance and despair. Pride in one's moral superiority is damaging to the communication of faith in Christ alone. That is, pride in one's moral stance ultimately harms 
our desire to preach Jesus by himself. In contrast, some are so conscience-stricken by their inability to live faultlessly that they cannot enter the church without stumbling over mountains of self-accusation. Do you hear that? On the one hand, you'll have somebody who, who is, is, is so righteous and is so figured this sanctification thing out and doesn't sin anymore right like that to anybody, but they can become so proud of themselves that they're relying on their own strength and not Jesus anymore. And then on the other hand, you'll have a pastor who is so penultimately aware of his own sin that, that coming in the church door is, is crippling. You, you're bowed un, over under the weight of our own sin. And I would further that Brian Chapel with all due respect to, to him, but that might be pastors and prophets. It, it is pastors. We're, we're so aware of our own sin that standing up here in front of you is, is, is next to impossible because there's no justification for it. But you know who else suffers from this condition? All of us. All of us are at some level caught between knowing that we have sinned and don't deserve to be here in God's presence. It's true. Not one of us. And what begins to happen is it almost paints a picture of of God as a deity who exists almost as an angry father who's just kind of standing hands on hips above the church waiting for people to come in and saying, you're not quite right and you're not quite cut out for this. And honestly, that can develop our, our perspective at some level. It's not just a pastor problem. It's not an Isaiah problem. It's not a prophet problem. It's a Christian problem. So how do we understand God's forgiveness? And, and, and certainly Isaiah seems to understand this perfectly because he's been proclaiming judgment for so long in his ministry. He's so critically aware of Israel's sin. And at the beginning of the book, he's so critically aware of his own. And so this beats close to his heart. Fortunately, we've already read verses 1 through 8. So what I would like to do is pray very quickly and find out. Hopefully this message will be close to your heart as well. God, I pray that you would speak through me now, that that you would amplify your word through the emptiness of my being. And God, we pray that your message would be proclaimed and that it would shift the landscape of our hearts. God, we pray that you would be revealed in glory even here today and that we would take an appropriate stance of humility before the God of all creation. And at the same time, God, we pray that we would see the framework of your love behind everything that is about to take place, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. In Isaiah chapter 40, we would expect there to be a message of condemnation, and that had been Isaiah's point up until now. But instead, Isaiah brings a completely unexpected message. It is a message of comfort. Isaiah takes on himself the burden for the ensuing generations that the king did not have. So what is God's comfort? What is its impact on our lives? And what does it consist of? We'll see three very basic truths about how Isaiah spells out to show us the profound effect God's comfort will have. And the first is this, the cry of God comforts his people. It comes from verses 1 and 2. Look at them with me if you would. It says this, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. If we were to examine Isaiah chapter 40 without the context of verses 1 and 2, it would seem dire, would it not? 
If you look just at verses 3 through 5, it would be a world decimated by the judgment of a terrifying God. And then if you look just at verses 6 through 8, humanity is temporary and quick to be blown away by this judgmental deity who is eternal in his nature. Now, if we read very carefully, we actually see that all this takes place in the context of God's plan to provide us with peace. And more importantly than providing a context, this is a word that teaches us something about God and the nature of his relationship with his people. So common it is that repetition in the Bible should gain our attention, right? And we've heard that, that if you see something over and over repeated, it should cause our eyes to wander and gravitate towards that thing. And so when it begins by saying, comfort, comfort my people, I looked it up in the Hebrew, I translated all this, and you know what it says in Hebrew? It says, comfort, comfort my people. That's exactly what it says. And so then God goes on to describe the nature of his relationship with his people in verse 1. He says, speak tenderly, speak tenderly or I'm sorry, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. My people, says God, says you still belong to me. God is critically aware of the distance that Israel had attempted to place between he and and they, and yet he says, after all of it, you are my people, you still belong to me. And he goes on to say, says, your God, and I stand by you and continue to be faithful to you regardless of what has taken place. You are my people, I am your God. And more importantly, I have not forgotten about you. Now, at the time of the writing with Assyria bearing down on Israel, they are besieged. And it would have been tempting to assume that God had turned a completely deaf ear towards Israel. So imagine they're surprised to hear that God was aware, even through Babylonian enslavement, that I still know what's happening with you. You're still my children, and I'm still your faithful God. A few years ago, I read a book, and it became a movie um, called uh, Band of Brothers. And that, that doesn't look right, but it's okay. Um, called Band of Brothers. And there's, there's a scene, a very poignant scene in, in the uh, book that I thought was really spelled out in, in the movie. And anybody that's been a, a vet or served in the military, I think, will understand this. Um, there's a CEO of a particular division in the Army finally has, it's during World War II this takes place, and, and this young man finally has some leave away from the front lines, and so there's just kind of a poignant moment where he's just kind of sitting in the bathtub and, and he begins to think through and go over in his mind all that he's seen and witnessed and, and how he's had to kill young men and, and, and how he's seen friends of his get killed. And it finally all catches up to him. And, and there's a staggering sense of aloneness in, in that, that scene. And, and sure enough, a few years ago, I was in the, in the Naval Reserve as a chaplain for many years, and so we'd go, and we'd go several months away. And it, it, whenever you're away from family for any given period of time, it's interesting how it ultimately catches up to you, doesn't it? And in fact, there was, um, it, we were doing a field exercise, and I got sick. I got really sick, and I'll spare you the details, but it was awful. And we're out in the field, and there's no showers, and, and I just... That you just hit the point where you're completely battle-weary, and you just get to the point where you're like, I think I've had enough. In fact, I don't think I could take one more bad thing happening to me. And I think I finally, at that point, understood the scene from the movie, that 
all of us, at some point in our lives, will become saturated with battle weariness. Or, you will inevitably counter a season of sorrow. And, and, and that's just the testimony of the Bible. And if we're not sure about that, ask Naomi or, or, or Ruth. Or ask Jesus himself. Or ask Paul. Or ask Peter. Or, or any of the other saints who suffered while they were in this world. Particularly in the New Testament, those who suffered for Jesus' name. There just comes a season of sorrow. There does. And there comes the point in our lives where we're just completely battle-weary, and that's the picture that Isaiah paints here of Jerusalem. They can't take anymore. They've had their fill of the battle that rages around them, and they're desperate for a word of peace. And then God speaks to that situation, and He says, I've not forgotten about you. It's It's a message of empathetic comfort and tenderness. And He says this, my friend, you're still close to my heart. And and that word resounds to this very day. Perhaps you haven't heard God's voice in a long time. I don't know. I don't don't really know any of you here, and I wish that I did. Or maybe you yourself are in that, that season of sorrow right now. I don't know. But I can tell you this, the biblical testimony is that the season will end. It will. And, and God hears you. And, and, and God is immediate. He's here with us right now, both through the mechanism of the Holy Spirit, but God the Father resides in this place, and he resides in our hearts. And so we hear this word of comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. The cry of God comforts his people. And that's Isaiah's first truth. God is near to you, my friends, and the good news is he's near to me as well. The second truth that Isaiah points out is that the glory of God alters this space. The glory of God alters the space. And it comes to us from verses 3 through 5. If you would, please look at those with me. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, Isaiah plainly describes the path of the Lord, right? And it's a road that he alone travels, and and, and the Lord's presence demands that the surrounding environment is, is drastically and significantly altered. Now, again, if we just read that, it sounds like some sort of a nuclear bomb, Revelation 19 kind of a movie, doesn't it? Uh, what, the, what was the movie? Was it San Andreas? Um, there, there's a good buddy of mine that's a naval aviator, and he just is so frustrated because he flies helos, and he's so frustrated that they cast the rock as, as a pilot. How does he fit in the thing, and why are you hauling around 400 pounds of dead weight? I said, I don't know, man. It's a movie. You're thinking too much about it. That's the problem. How does he fit inside the cockpit? I don't know. I don't understand it. But, but the, the whole premise of the movie is that, you know, everything completely gets upended. And, and if we take that literally, and I think we should, everything gets upended. It's apocalyptic. And it's climactic. And yet, the context of verses 3 through 5 is comfort. And verse 5 shows the intent that all would see the salvation and glory of God. Now, the way of the Lord is not a literal highway between you know, Nazareth and Jerusalem, and, and God's not driving down it. Um, Isaiah is using figurative language to describe the scheme that carries the freight of God's good and perfect plan for our lives. And that great plan involves all people 
seeing and recognizing his greatness. And the way Isaiah handles this is that there's apparent roadblocks that are in place that run interference on what God wants to accomplish. And so the actual term here for prepare, that is prepare the way of the Lord, means literally a turning of the face. It's a turning of intent. It's a turning of of the interior as much as it is the exterior. It's a softening of the heart. And so one author actually writes this, it's taking immediate action to allow an event to take place. That event being the glory of God being revealed. And our lives and the lives of everyone around us changing. So nothing, nothing that hears the voice of God or experiences the glory of God will stay the same. It will change everything. This is the voice that spoke the world into being. The Bible says in Luke 19 that if his people don't praise him, creation itself will respond to him as creator, and they're going to go ahead and cry out anyway. They're not going to wait. Psalm 148 says that all creation is crying out anyway, that that when the trees are blowing in the wind, they're singing a song that our creator is magnificent. They're responding to his regular presence in our lives. And if that's true with all created things, then certainly if if his presence changes the temperature of the room, if he changes the landscape because he's here, then that has to be true in our hearts. Now, who does that remind us of? John the Baptist, right? He lived this out both literally and figuratively, right? He was out in the desert, and his primary mission was to prepare the way of the Lord because Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was coming, right? And so he lived in the desert crying out. Now, his concern wasn't the I-80. Luke 3 explains this concept perfectly. I don't think I put it in a PowerPoint, so let me read it to you. Luke 3, 3 through 8 says this. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then he quotes Isaiah 40. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, Revelation tells us that that will be a literal event at some point in our future. We will see the fulfillment of that, that prophecy in a literal way, but in a figurative way, John the Baptist brought it to bear by preaching a message of repentance. Yes, the earth will conform to the presence of God's working in it, but in advance of that, something else must take place. Our hearts must conform to the presence of God working in it. And if creation responds so shall we. It's the landscape of the heart that must change because God is coming. His revelation will be made known. Jesus' return is imminent. And and packaged into that is our hope that, that our pain and our suffering will end, and it will. God is eager to come for us, but when he comes, he comes with the full revelation of the glory of God. It will happen. And so we can make no mistake that even in Isaiah We must remove the obstacles in our heart. We must. It causes us to stop and and just take stock for just a minute of the things that we have accumulated in the interior of our heart, doesn't it? What what systems have we, we taken in there that don't belong? And I have to say this, and again, I don't know you, so you can just take it with a grain of salt at face value. You don't know me. I'm just some, I'm from Colorado originally. I grew up on a on a ranch. I don't know anything from anything. All my training was in music before I went to seminary. 
So just take this purely at face value from the Word of God. But if you have been waiting on this point, if you're kind of avoiding the dialogue about what's happening on the interior of the heart, my friend, please hear me, wait no longer. Because his return is imminent. God is eager to come back. And when he does, comfort will belong to his people. The glory of God alters the space. And then lastly, we'll finish up with this. The word of God abides. If you would, please read verses 6 through 8 with me. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's very difficult to hear a a message of hope in this kind of language, isn't it? Because it it paints us to be so transitory and disposable. Grass is at the very bottom of the food chain. Like I said, I was raised, uh, we, we had a house in town and we had 700 acres of rocky Colorado soil. So what that meant was about 40 acres of that was useful for animals. So we had about 40 head of cattle, and, and I was in 4-H and did all that stuff. And, and the best meat in the world is just Colorado grazed-fed cattle. I'm just going to tell you that. We just put them up there and let them just kind of roam around the mountainside, and all we had to do was get them water, which was, was pretty difficult. But what you realize very quickly is that the grass is at the very bottom of the food chain, isn't it? There's not much that gets lower than that. And this is comparing us to that. So at our, at our average, we're mildly functional, right? We serve as food. At our best, it says that, that, that we're like a flower. So at our best, at our absolute highest of heights, we're lovely but easily forgotten. And that happens relatively quickly, right? And then at our worst, what are we? Mulch. Yep. So before we talk about anything else, we have to affirm, and, and the Bible says, yes, it's true, you and I, our mulch. Our greatest accomplishments that, that you and I will accomplish in our lives mean nothing next to the eternality of the living God. Now, if I mentioned Pastor Kevin to you, at a personal level, a couple of you smile because you know him. And when I say you know him, you don't just know like the facts about his life. You may not even know all the facts about his life, but you kind of know his personality, his heart. But if I mention Einstein or Miles Davis or George Washington, okay, well, so what? Well, we do know the facts of their lives for the most part, but we don't know them. And it didn't take very long for us as a collective people to lose the sense of their character and identity and only retain the facts. Their greatest accomplishments live only in our heads, but not our hearts. And this is brought home completely in verse 6. When he says, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The term beauty that the Bible uses is chesed. chesed. And that's the same word throughout the Old Testament that God uses to explain his loving kindness to his people. And that's kind of how we translate that. We just kind of mix a bunch of words together because we don't really have an apt translation for the term chesed in, in Hebrew. It's such a wonderful word. It's God's essential stance towards people when he sees people it's not something we, we've done anything to deserve it. He just kind of started out with this perspective of chesed. He just, I just love you, and I'm like patient with you, and I'm going to be kind to you, and, and, and you're going to be a bonehead, 
and, and he continues to stay faithful even though we're boneheads. And, and, and that's chesed. It's the ongoing faithful commitment to his people. And this says that at our best, at our absolute highest maximum output, we're able to only at some level reflect a small percentage of the beauty of God's kindness. And then it's gone after a moment, and it's gone forever. So how is this a message of God's hope? It's a good question. Standing in between God's people and the fullness of God's comfort, and this is true right now, is a mountain of sorrow in an army too vast to number. Standing between Israel and Jerusalem and the fullness of God's comfort was an army of Nineveh, from Nineveh, of Assyria, too vast to number. And then when they were enslaved by Babylon, it became even worse. They were, they were suspended by geography as, as well. The thought that, that, that Israel would be restored was not just an, an impossibility. It was a statistical impossibility. It was completely inconceivable because there was absolutely no means of return. It was an impassable obstacle as well. They had no means to even get back there. And then there were people, evil people, holding them in. And so God affirms an amazing truth to Israel that remains true to you and I today. And it simply is this, that the massive obstacle in the eyes of a living and creating God is nothing. That the sum total of all mankind's output, not just Nineveh, and not just Assyria, and not just Babylon, but the sum total of all that we do waits to be breathed on by the God that spoke the world into being, and it just scatters to the wind. It doesn't mean anything. The, the tall tower of adversity that stands in, in our way in our spiritual life or, or, or in our job or whatever it might be, it just is completely incomparable to the living God. He already has victory over it, and he can move that mountain at any in a moment, and in the cavity of that destruction of that enemy of God, there's only one thing that remains, and it says what it is. It's the Word. And so 1 Peter 1.25, he states this per passage verbatim in Greek, and then he, he adds to it, and he says, and this Word, that, that thing that remains after God has leveled the, the opponents of God, and he's bringing his kingdom and comfort to bear, this, this word that remains, he says, it was the good news that was preached to you. Peter says, I, I already told you all about it. It has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ. Part of church life, and, and this is true. Gosh, we're going through this at Montvale right now with a couple of people. Part of church life is suffering alongside one another through deep and dark despair, isn't it? It's a serious and grave grappling with unanswerable questions. And there are people in here, just statistically, I don't know for certain, and I don't know your story, but there are people right here, right now among us, who are going through the exact same thing. Because it's true in every church. For some, it's depression. For some, you buried a loved one. For some, you lost your job. For some, your heart hurts because you're suffering through separation. Some of us face those very things right now. And Isaiah reminds us of two things. And the first is that God is mightier than those things. He is. God is mightier than the spiritual adversity that, that, we will, that will come up against us. And 
in our, our daily walk. God is mightier than the circumstances that have arranged themselves that have taken us down to our absolute basement level. God is mightier than uh, when we find ourselves completely empty from spiritual battle and we just can't take another tragedy in our lives. God is mightier than, than all of those things. And it's extremely tempting for me to stand up here and just kind of leave it, leave it right there and say, well, God just, he, he breathes on the sum total of all human output and, and it's all gone. And in the scope of eternity, it doesn't matter, so don't worry about it. But the truth is, is God also does not abandon us with such a trite bumper sticker reminder. Oh, two years ago, we uh, buried my mother-in-law. Uh, two and a half years ago. And we sat in a line, and so interesting, the things that, that very well-meaning and, and well-intentioned people will say when you've encountered a personal tragedy, isn't it? And, and some of you, I think, would acknowledge that because you've, you've inevitably experienced that. The, the suffering of the now is but a blink of an eye in eternity. Yeah, but we're suffering now, right? Isaiah doesn't leave us in that place. This is... This is no bumper sticker theology. Yes, the suffering of the now is now, but we also remember that the word remains through that period. of Jesus' faithfulness remains through the midst of all those things. There's no dimension of suffering greater than the suffering that Jesus himself endured and encountered. And as God brings raging justice on an evil and fallen world, a literal event that will take place in the future, the thing that survives all of it, the thing that accompanies us through that season, the thing that, that stands in the middle of it, that thing is the Word, and it has a name, and the name is Jesus Christ. He is the Word of comfort. And He's etched into this as the framework by which all this could even be stated. How is our warfare with God ended? How is our iniquity pardoned? Unless there's, there's a name that we can call on, and thereby be saved. And the only means that I have of enjoying the pardon of my iniquity, and the only means that you have of enjoying the pardon of your iniquity, is Jesus Christ. And so the word of comfort, it remains. H.R. Uh, Palmer is a very famous music theoretician. I'll just end with this, because I could just go on all day, and I feel bad about that. H.R. Uh, Palmer is a very famous music theoretician, he was a contemporary of, of, of D.L. Moody, and he was chartered to write Sunday school songs. And, and so one of his Sunday school teachers was this name, uh, a lady named Mary Baker, and uh, she wrote a bunch of hymns, and you would never even know her name. She just was a very humble kind of a person. Um, but listen, she wrote a hymn called Master the Tempest is Raging, and, and it was the result. She just sat down on a Sunday morning and wrote it, the result of a very difficult time. And so here's how she wrote it out. She described it. A very dear and only brother, a young man of rare loveliness and promise of character, had been laid in the grave, a victim of the same disease that had already taken father and mother. Do you hear that? He was more than a thousand miles away from home, seeking in the balmy air of the sunny south the healing that our colder climate could not give. This is in Chicago. Suddenly, he grew worse. The writer, that is her, was ill and could not go to him, and for two long weeks, the lines of telegraph wires carried back and forth messages between the dying brother and waiting sisters, ere the word came, which told us that our beloved brother was no longer a dweller on the earth. Although I had believed on Christ in early childhood, I became wickedly rebellious. I said in my heart that God did not care for me or mine. 
But the master's own voice stilled the tempest in my heart and brought it to the calm of a deeper faith and a more perfect trust. And with that, she picked up a a pen and she wrote this. Master, the tempest is raging. The billows are tossing high. The sky is overshadowed with blackness. No shelter or help is nigh. Carest thou not that we perish? How canst thou lie asleep when each moment so madly is threatening a grave in the angry deep? Verse 2 is this. Master, with anguish of spirit, I bow in my grief today. The depths of my sad heart are troubled. O waken and save, I pray. Torrents of sin and of anguish sweep o'er my sinking soul, and I perish, I perish, dear master. O hasten and take control. And then hear the refrain that she wrote. And praise God. The wind and the waves shall obey thy will. Peace be still. Whether the wrath of the storm-tossed sea or demons or men or whatever it be, no waters can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. They all shall sweetly obey thy will. Peace, be still. Peace, be still. What lies ahead for you, I don't know. If it's a season of joy or a season of sadness, I can't say. But God doesn't bring a message of judgment for his people. He brings a message of comfort. It's a cry expressing his unerring faithfulness. But it's also a, a cry that demands repentance in attendance to the glory of the living God. And it also reminds us that we have peace in Jesus Christ, peace with God, who has not forgotten about us. Let us pray. God, I thank you for this church. I pray you would prosper the ministries of this church. We don't care about, we don't care about money. We don't care about resources. We know that you own all those things, and, and you could pour and, and allocate those things as you see fit. What we care about, God, is people. God, I lift up to you the people that are here. If there is the suffering or the sorrowful here, God, we pray that they would have a sense of your comfort in Jesus' name through the Holy Spirit. And God, similarly, for those that that the season of sorrow yet lies ahead or there's a a season of anxiety, God, we, we pray that you would accompany them through the midst of the storm. And lastly, Lord, we pray that this place would be a place that, that your glory is continued to be revealed. God, I pray for Kevin's ministry that, that as he continues to preach and, and, and speak out of your word, that, that you would be made known, that you would change the landscape of this place so that it would accommodate the, the, the massive glory of your kingdom. God, we pray that you would continue to work here at this church and that you would save your people. Thank you that you comfort us in Jesus' name. Amen.